Heavy Cardboard, episode 154. What's going on? Coming to you from a very, very soggy Wakefield Mass. Welcome to Heavy Cardboard, where we talk medium and heavy strategy board games, war games, 18xx, and other related topics in the board gaming hobby. We're your host. I'm Edward. And I'm Martin. So I've been saying this now for 150 plus episodes. What other related topics? We don't do that too much. I guess uh, in other topics in the board gaming hobby, I guess we do sometimes, but more often than not. I just found that interesting or not. Mm. Anyway, what have you been playing? Let's just get into it. People know who you are. People Mm -hmm. know who I am. Yep. Uh, Let's get into what we've been playing. Let's start off. Automobile. Automobile. Last night's game. Yes. So that was uh, my fourth play of Automobile. Um, we played it. I played it twice: the, the practice game and the stream about two years ago. Then didn't play it. And then on Saturday and uh, the game day, um, somehow it came up. I was one of them brought it. No, Scott brought his copy, and said, "Yeah, let's give it a game of Automobile." And we sat down, the four of us, and we had a really good time with it. I completely, I'd forgotten the rules completely. I, I needed a complete teach from you. I, 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 I had too, but ironically, I had my teaching notes from when I taught it in the box. I kept them in there, and I was like, oh, and I could kind of go over those a little bit. Um, that was more ahead of last night's stream as opposed to the uh, the pre-play on Saturday, but I hadn't pl- the last four times that I've played it were the same mm. four with you, and I'd played it a handful of times before that as well. Didn't go well. Well, the Saturday went very well for you. You won quite handily on Saturday. Saturday was a, was fun. Um, it was uh, it was the same four that streamed it last night. It was you, me, Scott, and Craig. Yeah. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised when when Scott brought his copy and he was like, "Hey, automobile," and I was like, "All right," because that's one of those games that we've streamed it, so it's not really on my radar, but. If people want to play it, I'm down for that. Mm. And had a wonderful time after. It's amazing how much of the rules I completely forgot. I mean, completely forgot. Like, didn't yeah. you would have thought it was the first time I'd been playing or I'd played it until we actually got through the first round. And then I was like, oh, this is familiar. I remember. Okay, now it's starting to come back to me. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because I, I, again, I really enjoyed it. And I ended up sort of thinking, hmm, what could be a way to open the game and I sort of fought with various characters and of course I tried a perhaps a little aggressive opening <laughs> on, on, the, on the stream uh, a um, touch very uh, very aggressive <laughs> yes but I thought hey you know just try some stuff and see what happens and uh, something happened yeah it certainly did but uh, the main strategic tip I have for automobile which is actually true of other board games as well is don't forget key rules when you're building your strategy you and I both did this, and uh, with automobile, um, I I don't know. Do we want to give an overview of the game, or yeah, I think so because not everybody will will be watching the stream. So with with automobile, um, the basic theme is you're building and selling cars, automobiles, and you have this linear track that goes around the outside of the board um, with different car models, and as you go around, they increase in their the the cost to build a factory to build them. And there's three different types of automobiles, the mid-range, the cheapies, and the the expensive cars. And you build factories on the various slots. Once somebody's claimed a slot with a factory, they're the only person who can build factories on there. 
That model of car. That right, model yeah. of car. Yep. And then you have a round where you decide how much you're going to produce. And this is interesting because it's a decision. Usually in Euro games, there's no decision about how much you produce. You're desperately trying to produce as much stuff as you can. Okay, everybody produce. I get three corn and right. two of this and seven of that, whatever. But with automobile, you have to think, oh, how many people are producing mid-range cars? How many do I think I can sell? Because there's a limited amount of demand, which you're not quite sure what that demand amount is because there's a slight probability distribution there. Well, not just that, but depending on the number of players, assuming a four or five player, which is where automobile shines as four or five players, you either know 20% at a five-player game or you know 25% of the demand for what's going right. uh, of what's going to sell. Yeah, so you have to figure out how much am I going to decide and it, you have to figure out in both places because every time you build a factory there's a minimum amount you've got to produce. So if you build a lot of factories you're going to be building a lot of cars whether you like it or not. Um, and so there's a lot of decision making but one of the things I really like about automobile is this fact you've got to think about how much do I build because if you overbuild not just if you wasted the money that you've spent on building you get these horrible little black um, cubes which turn into black discs which if you're not careful you and I both sort of broke records as to how many of those things we got due to rather aggressive overproduced production but yeah. yeah, and then the lost cubes, not only, like you said, do you waste the money having built the cars and not selling them, but then you get the lost cubes, which you then have to pay money to get rid of as well. Or yeah. not, not to get rid of, but for having them yeah. if you haven't gotten rid of them. So uh, it takes place over four rounds. It's essentially nine steps each round in a determined order, player order, and rinse and repeat, building factories, producing cars, using, uh, putting out distributors to help you sell additional cars and stuff like that. And we, when we finished last night, you and I crash and burn pretty hard because, like you said, the one main important, super, super cannot stress enough rule that is somehow easy to forget for at least you and I is if you close a obsolete factory, it still produces cars, but the further back it is in technology, the... Uh, later, you get to sell those cars, and demand gets filled before you get to sell a lot of your cars. So be careful with that. So what do you do? One of the things you can do on a turn, or possibly during the executive uh, decisions later on in a turn, is close a factory. Not only do you not get lost cubes for having more obsolete or um, kind of uh, uh, older trains, if you will, but uh, mm -hmm. older car models, but the important rule that you and I forgot Get rid of half your lost cubes rounded up. So if you have, I don't know, seven lost cubes, you get rid of four of them every time you close a factory. And yep. you don't gain more lost cubes for having obsolete cars. Hey, that's probably an important thing to remember. Yeah, I remembered the not gain lost cubes for calculated cars, but and I did the math in my head. I thought, oh, the loss I'm going to get from the cubes is actually less than what I'd lose from the factory because you, you pay a certain amount when you close the factory. So it's not worth doing. But I completely forgot, of course, I'd get rid of half my loss cubes, which was... Yeah, don't want to give it away because we're recording this live in front of folks. But um, I, I legitimately think there were records broken for most loss cubes in a game. <laughs> 
having at the end of the game. Uh, we also saw a uh, interesting thing where there was a, I won't mention which one, but there was a factory that you don't normally see open throughout the entire game mm. that was open. So, um, But that said, even though you and I crash and burned, me way worse than you, automobile, I... All right, everybody knows how I feel about Age of uh, how we both feel about Age yep. of Steam. And we'll talk about Age of Steam a little bit later uh, as a game that we've played recently. But Age of Steam notwithstanding, you have, I would argue, like the, the big classic Martin Wallace games, right? You obviously have Brass, which is the yep. kind of the benchmark for Martin Wallace games. Again, not, uh, Age of Steam notwithstanding. Um, automobile. Then you have some of the smaller ones like Tinner's Trail and stuff like that. Um, you have a study in Emerald, but I would I would say that kind of the the big three that when you think of Martin Wallace again, Age of Steam, Dispute, yada yada yada. But Age of Steam, Brass, Automobile. I don't know what I would put anywhere close to those three. Hmm. Uh, yep. There's a few acres of snow. And the various iterations that that has taken, um, ships kind of follows is kind of like a uh, handful of stars version of uh, a few acres of snow. Ships kind of follows that model with from automobile, but brass and automobile are the big ones for me. And having played this, I'm sure there's a recency bias here as well for me, but. I think I like automobile more than brass, but on a given day, maybe that would change. But this is definitely a Hall of Fame classic game for me that only gets better the more I play it. And I appreciate it the more I play it. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely would put it as high on my list of games. I normally don't like to, I wouldn't consider buying a game that like this because it doesn't play with two players. And I do like games that I buy to be able to play just me and Cindy. Um, I would probably break that rule for Automobile, actually, because I, it is such a good game. Um, and so, yeah, I'd rate it highly. I wouldn't rate it as highly as Age of Steam or Brass, um, but then I don't rate anything as high as Brass, so <laughs> Fair. <laughs> that would um, be tough. And, and full disclosure, Martin Wallace's name is on the box for Brass Birmingham, but I feel like that's more of the Roxley folk uh, than it is Martin Wallace. I think he had a hand in it, but I, I think it's more Gavin and, uh, oh God, now I'm going to draw a complete Matt blank. Coleman. Uh, thank you. And Matt. Um, and I know them both. Sorry, Matt. Uh, but Brass uh, Lancashire, yep. the, the originals, what I'm kind of referring to in that regard. But man, I hope Automobile gets a reprint. I really do. It really deserves one. Um, I mean, I, as I understand it from watching BGG, there is an ex-employee of Mayfair who got the licensing rights to it. Um, and he did post on BGG a year, maybe two years ago, saying that he was looking at trying to arrange a, uh, another publication. And then we haven't heard anything since. Anyone would think some major disaster has occurred to the world in the last year. Um, but I, would I really want to see it. I mean, because the other sad thing about Automobile is that the two productions are both pretty ugly, to be quite frank. And not um, only that, but they're they're lacking graphic design. Yes. Uh, so you're talking ugly from a artistic... I mean, we still have the board here on the table in front of us, and I can appreciate that 
I'm fine with it the way it is. There there are lots of browns and lots of greens, and there's some pinks in there, which you wouldn't normally think those colors go together uh, very well. But just the way the, the graphic design layout and the lack of some information. We had mentioned last mm. night uh, being able to have some sort of track for how many cars have been produced of the three different types. That would be fantastic. So we're not always constantly recounting. Wait. Are there 17 or 19 cars that have been produced already? And not having it just slows down the game. Yeah, they're, they're having a little track. Oh, I produced 10, so move the track up 10. You produce seven, we're now up to 17, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. I think that would be a huge improvement right there. Then we had talked about um, for moving the discounted car areas off to the side and having the word discount on them so that. Because new players automatically wire their two uh, mm. boxes for each type and having them off to the side, as well as having a little account of how many of the executive, I'm sorry, of the distributors that are out there. Uh, just because, yeah, I can count. I'm looking three, four, five, six. I don't want to have to, I just want to be able to look at a glance. There are six uh, luxury distributor spots, you know, uh, in total 23 all day, et cetera, et cetera. And just prettier. So, yeah. Yep. I think so. I think uh, there are definitely some fixes that could be made, and I think there would be demand for a new version of automobile. And some people had mentioned maybe Roxley, and this is us just spitting out. You know, publishers yep. don't have any in on any of this, but a Roxley or a Capstone. I mean, though, I feel like those are like the go-to's for this type of thing. I don't mm -hmm. know why. Uh, Roxley, I guess, because they did Brass Birmingham and Brass Lancashire. But I think Automobile, it's not going to be as popular as Brass, but I think that uh, there would be quite the demand for a new version of Automobile. And it is so, so good. Unfortunately, the game shines best at a four- or five-player count game, which, let's face it, Everybody wants a solo. Everybody wants a two-player version of it, mm. and I can't... Maybe somebody could develop something in this with that, but, yeah, this is a four- or five-player game. Yep. Automobile, uh, go for it. You you have a list of four games that you think flow together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, you've been uh, taking a couple of weekends off, and while you were taking the weekends off, I hosted um, our local group. And one for of the game things, we, yeah, yeah. So one of the things we wanted to do was hit some of the recent games that, once we get around to thinking about how to rescue the, the golden elephant from the uh, pandemic uh, blues, um, what are the recent games that? You know, might be worth considering. So Shrey had copies of uh, a couple of tea games. From Board and Dice, the, the tea series, Daniel Tassini ones. So we played a couple of uh, tea games, which are Takenu and Tawantitsuyu. Is that correct, do you think? Go with it. I mean, I, do you, would you, uh, Takanu? And Tawantinsuyu is how I've, been, how, yep. how I've been told it said, but I'm probably wrong as well. Yeah, so we played both of those, and um, it's interesting because, I mean, they they naturally come together because of their publication and the name, and they also kind of tie back to Teotihuacan and then even back further to Zolkin. Um, and but they also feel very similar in the sense that you've got this rather 
is at the heart of it, there's some rather interesting action selection mechanism going on. In Takanu, it's this um, dice drafting where you've got this completely superfluous rotating obelisk. obelisk. Yeah. Um, but it, it makes dice more or less valuable to draft. Um, and it's quite an interesting mechanism because you've also got to predict, oh, in next round, when the obelisk turns, this die will become much more valuable or much less valuable to, to grab. So maybe I want to wait, maybe I want to not wait, etc. Um, with uh, Tsuyu, you've got this interesting thing where you've got workers that you're placing on spaces, but it's not a worker placement game because the workers aren't tied to you. Um, you've placed the worker, you get to use one of the actions around that spot. Or, or multiple, as it were. And right? if you yep. place... The workers are of different colors, and if you place like colors next to each other, you get multiple actions that you're able to do. So you're trying to cluster like-colored workers when you place them, but there's no kind of sense of the workers are yours. You don't get them back at the end of the round in the way that you do in a, in a typical worker placement. So it's an interesting action selection mechanism, and that's quite fun, but then when you sort of return, okay, what do you do with these actions? Well, you convert resources maybe from one kind to another. You buy some things. You go up a temple track. You do some area control thing in some areas off the side of the board. You can hear the excitement in my voice. Pace yourself, sir. Pace <laughs> yourself. And, and they have that same thing. And it's, just, I mean, again, with Zolkin, right? Go, going back to the, the first of these, really interesting cogs rotating worker placement mechanism. Really cool. And you're going up temples. And there's just something deflating about all of that clever action selection mechanism leading to a scoring mechanism that's kind of meh. So... Before I give thoughts on these, uh, let me ask you, do you think that is jaded, Martin? Or is that just you've played so many kind of resource conversion, moving up tracks, and, you know, recipe fulfillment, like I'm thinking of the buildings and everything that you're trying to do, um, or for various uh, acquisitions that will score you points, ultimately, either immediate or later on. Um, is it just rote? Is it that the mechanism, those things that you're doing is tired or is it, and you're tired of it, or is it something else? It's an interesting question um, because the next, actually, to, to really make that question, I'm going to bring in the next game on the list, which is Formosa T. So Formosa T was actually something that Andrew brought along to our first session, first post-pandemic session that we got together. He brought the game along, and I'd missed it when it came through Heavy Cardboard um, after the, the Essence. So I was interested to give it a try. And in some ways, that game oughtn't to be that different. I mean, it's about it's tea, right? So like, I mean, we're, we're, we're partial. Well, okay, I see what you're doing there. Tea as in drinking tea, but also the letter... Try the veal. He'll be here all week. Uh, but let's face it. The theme appeals to you and I because we are both uh, rabid tea drinkers it's as well. It's more than that, though. The theme is actually... It, it is very solidly embedded in the game. I agree with that, but I'm saying you and I are predisposed already yeah. to want to like it just because of the theme that it is. That's fair. Um, but please, continue. Yeah, so one big difference to me is, is the theme. So 
in Tiwatsu, you're in Inca, what's it? But do you actually get any sense of doing something in the world of the Incas? No. no. Not, not the slightest. And that's true. Zonkin might be a little bit, but not really very much. I feel like it's a bit lazy at this point to keep falling back to the quintessential uh, theme integrated in a Euro game. But no game does it better, in my opinion, than Obsession. Not every game is going to be Obsession. But I see what you're saying regarding Formosa T feels like you're, because the actions that you're taking are more tied to the theme of producing tea than the other ones that you're talking about. And another thing about it as well is the scoring mechanism is all about tea. In a, in a kind of more, I mean, scoring mechanisms are themselves somewhat vanilla. I mean, you've got a bunch of recipe fulfillment with the contract tracks. You've got a, a, a temple track, right, which is the, the internal market. You're just going up a track. Kind of boring. But they're actually all about selling tea. You have got this sense of, oh, yeah, I'm selling tea into these different places. Yeah, the mechanisms aren't necessarily at all original, but the tea theme ties into it. And then I think you've also got quite an interesting um, twist in the, the action selection side of things. The way that the, the placement of your workers in the tea harvesting spots determines how and when they move up the tea processing slots is an interesting mechanical thing that really appeals. Somehow that appealed to me. Is it because it's something different and it's not rote? Um. Yeah, although frankly, I mean, similarly not rote is the way you have to coordinate the dice together in Teotihuacan. Um, or again, the, the way that you get the turning obelisk in uh, um, Takanu. So it, I don't think it's just that. There's some combo of the two, perhaps also mixed with the fact that Formosa T is a much simpler game. I feel it, it's a step less complex in terms of rules than the other tea games that I mentioned and therefore it's more focused I agree with that and hmm, I this is something on that note about uh, talking about more focus and all of that I, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately uh, when it comes to gaming uh, usually on Saturdays uh, when we're going to do game days and thinking about what is it I want to play not necessarily what do I need to play for the show, stuff like that, but what do I really want to play? And we've been talking quite a bit about like a Vito Lacerda style game. I think the Danielle Tassini style as well as the Vito Lacerda are kind of in a similar bucket where it is a lot of things. And I used to enjoy these more than I think I do now. I'm not hmm. saying that I don't enjoy them now. I think I have enjoyed my plays of Tekanu, uh, Tawantan Suyu, um, and all the predecessors of that. I've enjoyed my plays of The Gallerist and Kanban and all of that. I will say that some of the, the solo versions of some of Vital's games have maybe soured me on just the overabundance of mechanisms that are within the same game. So I have found that I'm enjoying more focused games more, but that doesn't mean to the exclusion of those. However, I find myself not 
champion it a bit to play those when given the opportunity of, oh, we don't need to play something specific for the show right now. What do we want to play? Uh, games like Furnace come up more and stuff in a Formosa T than something like an On Mars or whatnot. Have you felt the same in that regard? Yeah, and that's not necessarily new in the sense that I've always had this sense of a game doing too much. Um, I think actually the Lucerta games that I've played, and I've only played Lisboa and the Gallerist, kind of make an exception to that because there's something about the way both the mechanisms are interconnected in a much more tight manner, together with the fact that there's very, very a lot of theme there. There was, there was actually, when it was this, one of the recent games, um, Shrey mentioned he wanted to play Lisboa. We ended up playing Toen Sisu instead, but because of we, Lisboa was a possibility, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to teach this. I can't remember Lisboa, and it's not an easy game to remember to teach. So I went back to the rules, and as I was reading the rules, I felt my excitement growing. I thought, oh, yeah, I really like the way that these things interconnect and intertwine, and I was kind of looking forward to getting it back going again. So it's a combination of the way the theme embeds itself into the game, and it's also a combination of the way the mechanisms fit together, I think. But I'm saying all of this in a kind of loose way because I'm trying to explain my own emotional reaction to the game. I know that I felt kind of a certain amount of dead inside after playing Takano and Tawantitsu. That, That's aggressive. Yeah. While I felt an excitement. When, when Andrew brought over Formosa T and I played that first game of Formosa T, I went and bought it, even though I had shipped all the way from Taiwan, right? Which is kind of crazy. And... And Cindy liked it as well, which obviously helps when it comes to choosing to buy a game. Sure, um, but I and I've really enjoyed playing it. Cindy has been completely beating me at, at Formosa T, so I've got to figure that out. But, um, but yes, yeah, so there's an excitement there. There's a, there's that sense of oh, I want to play this. While with other games, I kind of play it and go, okay, I don't need to. But I'm always puzzled as to why. What is that doing? Is it just because it's a good day, bad day? Because it might be. Or is there something in the game? What is it about the games that makes something appealing or not appealing to me? It's, it's kind of a thing that always makes me curious. Same. And I, it, it, it feels like it changes you know, day to day, week to week, but there's definitely a long-term trend I'm noticing. I still like my heavy complex games, obviously. Um, but I noticed that I am also really enjoying, I don't want to, I, I hesitate to use the word cleaner game. Like they're somehow dirty, or, mm -hmm. but clean as in just focused. That's actually the right word I think here. And I think that some of these, while I think all of the mechanisms that are in a VTOL or Danielle Tassini game are important to make the game work how they envisioned it working. I don't think there's anything necessarily extraneous there. I just don't know if I'm enjoying the rules, the mechanical complexity as much as I once did. Hmm. So is that a evolution or change in me or I don't know. I don't know. But because there are other games that are on this list that we're going to talk about that kind of challenge that a little bit. So I don't know. But I find it an interesting, you know, thought process there as well. Um, 
So moving on from Formosa Tea, which I really enjoyed. I haven't played mm. in, well, since we last streamed it, to be honest, but I really enjoyed my plays of it. And I've I've enjoyed uh, Takenu. I enjoyed Takenu less than Tawantan Suyu solo. I can tell you that. <laughs> and I enjoyed, yeah, I think I enjoyed Tawantan Suyu more than Takenu, but I think it's close, but neither of them, Am I Jones in to get back to the table? But at the same time, neither would I be like, eh, I really don't want to play that unless I'm just mentally exhausted that day and just right. don't want the the oomph. I don't have the oomph to put into a game. But otherwise, yeah, I, I would. It, it fits in the them. fine games category, right? Because I and I always, in fact, when I first started in this hobby back in the eighties. I mean, I would have killed for a game as good as uh, Takano. Sure. Because there was just so little decent games in those days. And now we're just, we've just this massive amount of, of uh, I'll think of the right word eventually and, and stop burbling. We've just got this delge of, of wonderful games to work with. So as a result, you, your standards shoot upwards. Overabundance. That's of... the word. Abundance. Yeah. So, all right. So moving on from Formosa T, there's another game that I... Uh, haven't played the official final version, although the my copy is essentially the same thing. That's Coffee Traders. You wanted to talk about that, yeah. And that was uh, that was uh, another ex example of a game that, uh, yeah, it's interesting. To, with one thing with Coffee Traders was during these one of these sessions at, at our place, we actually pulled out Wildcatters, which are the same designers as Coffee Traders, and it was fun to play Wildcatters again. It was a bit of a, I hadn't played it for a while, so the teach was a bit kind of clumsy by my standards. And um, But we got into it quickly, and I really like a lot of the thematic qualities of Wildcatters. But the game kind of has these kind of bits of awkwardnesses, kind of like little burrs sticking out that you kind of catch yourself on. So the, the rough edges. Yeah. Okay, so, like, do you have anything in particular that well, you, you can come you up with? Well, you kind of go, well, what on earth is the purpose of this, uh, thematic purpose of these consolidation chits that I've got to deal with? That, that kind of doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and other places where it just feels like the, the game's just not quite as smoothly, carefully thought out as Olusurda has. And see, I I appreciate those rough edges. It's those rough edges that actually endear me to a game more than it being too smooth. And that was one of the big critiques that I had on a game like Scythe, right? Hmm. That it is smooth as butter. I mean, it has been developed to where it is just smooth. Yeah. And smooth to me <laughs> is meh. It's milk toast. Mm. So that that turns me off on a game more or less. And so those rough edges, even though Wildcatters, where I think the second edition is an improvement on the first edition, uh, even though it's removed some of those rough edges from the first edition, I think it's made the game better. But because it still has some of those rough edges, so. It's interesting that I'm talking about a a lowering of the mechanical complexity in games I prefer, yet I want some of those burrs or rough edges uh, to be maintained in games. So it's an interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, but uh, there I do feel it, it those got a little bit in the way. I mean, it, it makes me appreciate Brass more because 
um, they did a really good job of that kind of economic, historic, very thematic um, game. Um, and it kind of shows with a game that doesn't appeal to me more how good a job um, that, uh, that they did with brass. But anyway, we were talking about coffee traders. Coffee traders has a lot of those same characteristics of wildcatters um, for me. It, again, it, there was a nice thematic quality to it, but again, some of these line of rough bits that in the end made it not as appealing to me. And you, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to come up with examples because it was a month or more ago and I've forgotten um, what those rough edges were. So I played Coffee Traders over the course of the last, I don't know, three, four years at this point, and it's gone through so many different iterations that I forget which iteration is the final one. And it has been developed and streamlined incredibly compared to where I first <laughs> did played it, or even the second time when I'm told, okay, it's done, and then it had another development phase. Okay, it's done. Then it had another development phase. That's just that's the way these things work. And I enjoyed it. I really do. And to me, again, the mechanical complexity is lower in something like a Coffee Traders than going back to the previous conversation. And I haven't played Coffee Traders in, you know, many a moon, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't know if I liked it more than Wildcatters. I would have to play them both more recent, but Wildcatters has a special place in my heart. I'm just, I'm really keen on that game. But I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed my game of Coffee Traders. And thematically, it makes sense. You're, you know, you're farming coffee. You're then trading the coffee. And then there is that, uh, that recipe fulfillment to where you're, you're basically trying to fulfill goals with right. some of that coffee or selling it to the various uh, coffee markets or cafes or what have you. And I like the theme on it. I think it, 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 it uh, integrates it well and maybe not completely like you're talking about with those burrs or those, uh, those rough edges, but it felt enough to where I felt like, okay, I'm putting down this, this new uh, coffee plantation, and it feels like, okay, to be able to make this type of coffee, to then be able to trade it uh, internationally. And I, I think it worked really well. I really enjoyed that. And the production on that and the graphic design, I think, is wonderful, which doesn't hurt. Yep. But, yeah, so anything else on Coffee Traders? Not really, no. That, that, that uh, takes me there. Uh, but I felt that was an interesting sort of progression there. Tea games, Formosa tea, coffee, um, and I think raises interesting questions about this question of how much smoothness you want in a game, um, how much focus, um, and where our own tastes are kind of going in those in that direction. Yeah, and I think that's pretty natural once you've been in the hobby for a couple of years. Like you like. You know, you think you like X, Y, and Z, and then eventually it maybe morphs into maybe I only like X, or maybe you branch into other things, or you go down specific paths. But yeah, I think that's a normal uh, metamorphosis, if you will, of a gamer. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I, and I think it sometimes can swing back. The pendulum can go back the other direction sometimes as well. So that brings us to the next one. And this is one that I had really basically never heard anything positive about this game prior to being introduced it 
uh, to it by Shrey, and that's Urban Sprawl. So Chad Jensen design, uh, Chad Jensen being the designer of Dominant Species, Dominant Species Marine, Combat Commander, uh, Fighting Formations, a handful of other games, and a couple of, like, all-time classics there with Combat Commander for the War Gamers and then Dominant Species, because, duh. Uh, so Urban Sprawl, I've heard, first and foremost, it's a three-player game. I don't care what it says on the box. Three-player game. Extraordinarily tactical. Like, if it's not your turn, you could go get a drink. You could be on your phone. You're not really going to miss a whole lot. This is the the how it was sold to me. And you're basically developers of this city and you're, you're putting out, uh, buildings and there are, uh, there's a ton of randomness in this game from the various decks. There are four different decks of cards that are going to come into play. There are events and these events are seeded throughout and you don't know when or what is going to come up and you don't know, uh, how long the game will last. You have a rough idea because the deck is seated. Okay, this event will be in the bottom third of the deck, that type thing, but you don't know where in that bottom third. So some games run longer, some run shorter, et cetera, et cetera. So I came into it basically with zero expectations of anything. And as we played it, really found myself really enjoying it, even though uh, very tactical in a lot of ways, um, and kind of enjoying the roller coaster that is the, the random effect of the game. Like, okay, these events come out, they, they, they affect all of us, or maybe they just affect you and just kind of having fun with it and leaning into that. And provided that we do that, we found that we really enjoyed that. But then that first game went on and on and on, and it didn't. It kind of soured me on it. Hmm. And then we played it again for the stream. And because of the way those cards ended up being seated almost all towards the top part of that, you know, bottom whatever part, the game was extraordinarily quick and I would argue too fast. <laughs> so we had two extremes of that. That said, the more you learn the game, the more like that second play... I knew what kind of to expect with these random events. So it became, even though where they were going to come up, I have no knowledge of, none of us did, knowing that these are the things that are in there and knowing how to, in some rough way, be able to plan for those things and anticipate those things, the game felt less random the second time. And I think that would, that would continue down that path uh, up to a certain point after a number of plays. And bottom line, found out I actually enjoyed Urban Sprawl far more hmm. than I thought I would because I had no expectations going into it. Whereas a game like Dominant Species Marine, which we'll talk about, um, I had very different levels of expectation going into that and how that may have colored my enjoyment or not, as it were. But yeah, Urban Sprawl... Um, surprisingly enjoyed that game far more than I thought I would just understand that you need to embrace the chaos, especially in your early plays of the game. Right. Hmm. And you haven't played that, right? Yep. You haven't played Urban Sprawl? Yep. I know nothing about it. And I don't know. I think you would enjoy it. 
Uh, I don't think you would love it, but I think you would enjoy the game. So I think it's one that, not necessarily that you seek out, but if you get a chance, like at a game day or with Shrey or whatever, I, yeah, definitely recommend checking it out at least. So that's Urban Sprawl. Next one is uh, a game that we both like even more than Automobile, which is uh, Age of Steam. Yeah, I, I, I'm keen on that one. Yep. So we, uh, on stream, uh, you, the two of us and Ken got to play the uh, Triland map, um, which is a uh, Ted, uh, Ted, uh, Ted Horseback map. Yep, map. Um, it is a curious map because it's not of a real place. It's a completely artificial laid out map. Which already means you're not inclined to enjoy it as much because you prefer. Yeah. And I, I think the same could be said for me, that I prefer historical locations and maps and stuff. But it worked really well for the three of us. I mean, we had quite a cracking game of it. Um, it's a three-player only map. I think it's three players only. Uh yeah, it's three-player only map. Um, uh, there's a redraw by James Mathias that is available for print and play because this is way out of print. Yep. And when setting it up, I was like, eh, it's symmetric except for the colors of the cities on the various ends of the uh, island. And I didn't, again, didn't have really high expectations other than, hey, it's Aegis theme, so how bad can it be? Kind of find out, oh, my. Mm. Yeah, there's a really interesting variation in the rules where um, in Age of Steam, of course, you select um, certain special abilities at, at, at the beginning of the round. But in this game, you can only select certain abilities a certain amount of time. So everybody gets to pick urbanization once. Everybody gets to pick first move or what, uh, first uh, build twice. And there's you have to pick them twice. So, yeah, production, you might think, oh, I don't want production. Well, you're going to pick it twice at some point or other, so you've got to decide when you want to do it. Um, and certainly picking urbanization only once is, is a really interesting twist of things. I Because I chose to do it in the very first round, so I was at the whim of the rest of you for when to do that. And when Ken had urbanized early, you basically held the third city hostage mm. or held us hostage, as it were, with that third city and essentially forced all of a certain color cube to go through you. And that was unfortunate, mm. I think, is a, is a good way to put it. And that was, that was a clever, brutal aspect of that map that limited uh, not just the, the track lane aspect, but the what to take when, but also being aware of what other people can or can't take in a given right. round for their special actions and made for, well, I would call that a pretty innovative and special map. I like that far more than I ever thought I was going to. Yeah. I I would put that as one of the best three-player maps that I've played for Aegis Theme. I would put that on par with, like, you know, a lot of people put the Moon or Montreal Metro up there for three-player maps. Trilin has got to be up there. That was marvelous and brutal, which is two things mm. you want in Aegis Theme, right? Yeah, I haven't tried Montreal Metro or the Moon, so I can't compare it to those two. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a really good map. 
um, even though it was a non-real place, which definitely, that immediately knocks a point off um, straight off the bat for me, because I do like playing. It's one of the great things about train, ma train games of any variety is you get to play them over some bit of the world, and it's always been something that's appealed to me right from when I played my first train games back in the 80s. I mean, it's always been part of the what's made it appealing. And I've always been fascinated by maps in general, so that kind of makes sense for on my end as well. Although 2038 stands up and would like to be recognized trains in space, basically, and not a whole lot of tracks out there. But I yep. digress. So, yeah. Um, did you did you enjoy it more than you thought you would, though? Yes. It, even though it's a non-historical yeah. map type thing. Yeah, I came in kind of going, yeah, it's an artificial place. And I re really enjoyed it. I would play it, definitely play it again. Which is kind of how I felt about when we did uh, the disco one as well. Um, where, again, it's an artificial kind of crazy thing. But, again, it was just really fun. Yeah, agreed. So, all right. That is uh, Aegis Theme Trilin' Map, or, or as it's spelled, Trizzling. Um, here's one that uh, is, man, we have been trying to stream this game for, I'm not kidding, oh, a month, six weeks, something, and it is long overdue, and I apologize to the folks over at uh, Rio Grande Games, but um, due to availability of people, we haven't been able to stream it because, let's face it, five players is where this really kind of is the sweet spot. We'll probably be able to do it with four players next week. Iberian Railways by Rio Grande. Uh, originally a winsome game. And not Iberian Rails. Iberian Rails and Iberian Railways are two different games. Very much so. And so. we can never remember which is which. Yeah, so this is a Cube Rails game. Um, best definitely at four or five. We tried it with three. Didn't re I wouldn't recommend it. It's way, way too open with three. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting game because one of us tried a very uh, aggressive strategy that really got painful um, in the practice game. It'll be interesting to see what happens when we uh, do the actual stream. Um, yeah, I mean, it's Cube Rails games. I've always, I, I've been increasingly wondering how I feel about them. Um, I've played quite a few of them now, and I always feel they feel like they're going to be more appealing than they actually turn out when I try them. Maybe it's because I, I, when Paris Connection appeared on Board Game Arena, I sort of mentioned it to a bunch of friends and said, oh, I'd really like to try this because I played it once or twice and I thought this will be really nice. Plays a large number of players, quite quick, and it didn't really work at all with my old um, game group back in Europe. They didn't like it at all. Um, and maybe that had a connection? I don't know. But with Cube Rails games, I'm kind of... I look at it and I interestingly compare it to Age of Steam, where Age of Steam, I'm constantly taking that system, we're taking a little tweak on a new map, and it feels very different, but always very appealing. And while with Cube Rails games, there's kind of more room to vary what they do. There's always a bit of root-building-y stuff and companies-y-like stuff, but somehow it never manages to quite hit the notes in the same way that 
um, seems to be more reliably hit with Age of Steam. And Iberian Railways is a, this is one of the simpler, not Paris Connection or SNCF, if you prefer, uh, level of simplicity. But it's also um, definitely before a game like a dual gauge, for instance. And it, the, the hook on this one, I think, is you start with no money. And you're going to take loans. You get a certain amount of money per loan that you, I believe it's five bucks that you get per loan. And you're allowed to build track anywhere in the, on the Iberian Peninsula. And you will get income based on what cities that you build. And uh, on your turn, you're allowed to do one of, I believe it's four different things. You can either start a railroad. Anywhere out, just put cubes out, however yep. many, uh, paying however much. If you don't have the money, you can take loans. No harm, no foul. Uh, you'll pay a dollar in interest um, for the loan, but I digress. Or you could expand a r- existing railroad of yours that you've already built out there, uh, laying however much track that you're allowed to lay, anywhere between, I think it's three and eight. Or you can uh, purchase a... A certificate for basically, uh, it's going to be bonus income for you uh, if you ha- if one of your companies has has traveled to that city or town or metropolis, whichever it is, and you will get some amount of bonus income. The hook is you're only allowed to pay off one loan per round, but you can take as many loans as you want or need in a given turn. So if you take seven loans in a turn, no big deal. However, you can only pay one off per turn. And so uh, at the end, the scoring is very, very low. It is uh, whoever has the most income will get like two points. Whoever has the longest track will get one point. Whoever has uh, the most certificates for cities they've traveled or, you know, certificates that they purchased gets one point. So you'll see a thing that's like four to three to two points for the winning scores. And so it's it's interesting, but I don't I just don't know how m- much it's going to have leg-wise. Mm-hmm. Like if it's going to be, eh, or if it's really going to be compelling past a handful of plays. But the nice thing is it's not a terribly long game, and I think it'll make an interesting thing for to stream out and right. see and how it looks like. I think with the teach, we're talking an hour, maybe 75 minutes for the entire stream for a four or, or even a five-player game. So it won't – yeah, it's definitely on the shorter end of things. That is also into, uh, uh, adding in that streaming just takes longer because you're talking – us sitting here, it's 30, maybe 45 minutes to play a full game of that, I would say. Yep. And that's, again, a common characteristic of Cube Rails games. And one thing they do have over Age of Steam, if you haven't got much time, is you can, you can fit a Cube Rails game usually into quite a small Right, like a, even a Chicago uh, Express, you know, is under an hour, usually. Yeah. So, My favorite Cube Rails game is Transamerica, which, of course, doesn't have cubes, but it is still a Cubes Rail game. And I've never played it. You've never played I've it? I've never played Transamerica. Uh, that is... Uh, um, I would like to play Chicago Express again because I've only played it the once, so I can't really feel that I can compare it, and that would be sort of the closest of those I've played. I've not played um, Irish Gage, for instance, so I can't compare that. Um, but of the cube rails I've tried, Transamerica, I really, really like. It was bought for me years ago as a present from a guy who really liked the game. And every time I've taught it, people have really enjoyed it. It's, again, like cube rails games generally, super simple, um, 
really interesting, very fast play. Um, we should definitely take that and stream it because it's, uh, it's a lovely little game. There's another one. Now we're getting a little off here, but that I think of as a really good entry game to route building as well as uh, cross-investing in, in companies, and that's Airlines Europe, which I think is absolutely wonderful. And I don't think it, I think it's completely overlooked nowadays. Um, I know Ticket to Ride is kind of like the, the quintessential entry level for route building and that type thing. Uh, but I feel like Airline Europe, what? what? I'm giving you like a nasty frown because I don't think Ticket to Ride is about route building. The routes are already laid out on the map. You're just claiming them. Okay, and I think fair there's enough. a big difference between the two. There's, there's something, and I, I think it's partly mechanical, but partly visceral. There's just something interesting about making your own little path on the map. All right, that's fair. And Airlines Europe is uh, more akin to a ticket to ride, less route building than, than claiming, if you will. Um, it's more about the investing anyways in right. the various companies. But thoroughly enjoy that game. Played it uh, a handful of times more recent than not, and we haven't gotten it to stream, but I, w I don't think we have. Did we? Did we stream that? I can't... I don't know if I'm we gonna... have, but I, if not, we need to. I, I think it's a game that uh, definitely benefits, and it just goes to show my my memory is not what it was, that I can't remember whether or not we did. But yeah, Airlines Europe um, uh, also really, really enjoy in along the, the same ilk kind of of that. Um, moving on, you got uh, a next one, which I've never played this map of it. All right, so Concordia, um, which I know is not one of your great favorites of, of games, but it's one that has grown on me over the pandemic because I played it a lot on Boitage uh, with my friends in Europe. And when I've played 20-odd games and I'm still keen to play it, then that, to me, is a sign of a game that has got real legs. Which really shocks me, given what we had started out talking about with... Resource conversion. I mean, and that's all. I, <laughs> so explain the difference. I mean, and look, I'm not, you know, you know, calling you out on it. I just, I find it really interesting that you're talking about how a lot of the mechanisms that we had talked about earlier in, in, in the T games are kind of meh, but yet that's kind of what, but it also has the deck building aspect. Don't get me wrong. The Concordia has, but if, and and the routes are already there. And yeah, uh, yeah this is interesting, the dichotomy yeah, what is of it, that. What is the it that attracts me? It is very abstract, even though it's placed on maps. And the maps are fun. Um, it's nice to play on different maps. Um, I think uh, the rules are really very straightforward. Um, and it's really, and they're very easy to remember because every action you can take is a card in your hand and it tells you on the card what the action is. So hey, you're so never going to forget. So there's no forgetting, uh, getting rid of, uh, of, uh, lost cubes yep. because it's, it says on the, on the card. Right? Exactly. So the, you know, the player aid is right there in front of you. Um, it flows very nicely and it, you, 
there's a lot of dynamism to the game. You can you can set and you have to set a plan of several moves in advance, but that plan is always likely to be scuppered if you're determined that oh I'm intending to build in that city and somebody else builds in front of you and now the cost of building has gone up and as a result you're not going to be able to build there when you plan to. And then there's other opportunities to pop up as the card market alters or other things appear. So you've got to be very responsive to the game state. And I do like a game that gives you that. Um, yeah, for some reason, it managed to fire on the cylinders for me. So I really quite like the, ba the basic game of Concordia. For me, Concordia is a complete miss. And I know this is a me thing. Okay, I because I can appreciate how well designed the game is, and I appreciate. I know it's Shrey's uh, favorite game. It's it, it's definitely high on your list and a lot of other people's, and rightfully so. I I think it does what it does wonderfully well, but at no point does it ever excite me to play it, and I I will actively not play that. Like if another game gets offered, I will probably take the other game, and it's not anything against. It's just. Yeah. It's just one of those that just is a miss. It's like Glenn Moore for me, which a lot of people love. And I'm just like, eh. and yeah, I, I, I wish I could explain it, but I've played it enough to where I don't not enjoy my time playing it. I just, it's not something I will ever, ever, ever seek out. But yeah, we played it. Uh, there's actually, although I played Concordia a lot, there's, uh, it's the first time on a new map for me because I tried out the Gallia map, which was a number of the maps aren't available on Boitagia. So as a result, those maps are just sitting in, on the shelf waiting to be played. And since we were ready to give it a shot, we did that. And also one of the optional rules, which is the, the fish market, where uh, for those who, are, who know a little bit about Concordia, um, in Concordia, when you produce goods you get an extra bonus good in each province, which depends on the highest value good that that province produces. Um, with the fish market, instead of producing this bonus good, you get fish. And then you trade the fish in during the game for, with a, another little rondelle that's going round of various kinds of actions. It is Matt Gertz. Indeed. Um, and... I don't really want to talk necessarily about the fish market. A fish market is one of these optional rule things that there are, there are now quite a few of with Concordia. There's salt um, in salsa, which is this wild resource. There's the forum tiles, which I haven't even tried. There's an alternative card market where instead of buying cards always requiring cloth, it requires some combinations of wine and cloth. Um, and in many ways, this is kind of like what goes on with the different maps in Age of Steam, where each... Age of Steam map introduces some extra rules that come in. But in Age of Steam, the maps, the, these extra rules are always tied to a particular map, even though they don't have to be. I mean, you do the Hungary map on Age of Steam, and it has this rule that says, whenever you fulfill a route, you've got to include one track from somebody else, which you could do pretty much on any map of Age of Steam, but it's something that goes with the Hungary map. With Concordia, the modules, you can mix and match as much as you like. And I really don't like that. And the thing is, it tends to lengthen my least favorite game in board gaming, which is the what game shall we play game that you have whenever you get a group together. Okay, we're going to play Concordia. Okay, which map? Kind of exciting, because you're looking at all the maps, thinking what have I played. Okay, now which set of six optional rule sets can we com combination use in order to play on this? And you kind of, you know, the life drains out of you as you think about this. Because none of them, to me, are that compelling. Salsa's eh. The fish market is eh. 
the variable start setup where you get to choose whatever you like instead of the set resources are eh. I just, if it was tied into the maps, I'd feel a lot better about it, but it's not, and as a result, you've got to go through this whole what game are we going to play, even when we've picked the game game. I can't help but smile over here because I can appreciate that. That is the least favorite game of game day is, okay, what are we going to play game? Um, and completely unrelated, Demacher kind of has the same thing for me up until the fourth edition that recently came out recently a year or two ago, whatever is okay. Before that, there's usually some mix of third edition, second edition rules. Okay. What are we going to play? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? So I can appreciate that aspect of it, but I can't help, but your description of the life just draining out of you couldn't help but make me smile. Not because you having left less life forces <laughs> is appealing, just saying in general, but uh, yeah. Um, so Concordia in general, you know, you could just make up your own rules. I'm only going to play this map with this and that will satisfy that for you. Yeah. But then you've got to get everyone to agree with it, right? Oh no. You just say, if you want me to play it, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's part of this whole thing about where we place expansions, right? I don't tend to like expansions that are about um, modular rules add-ins because it ends this causes this combinatorial explosion. How do we play this game? Which is the same reason I don't tend to like house ruling because then it's the, okay, which set of house rules that I may or may not even know about are we going to play to play this game? I like it when it's kind of more tied in. Um, and, um, the, uh, but I do like expansions, which either expand map wise, which train games tend to do and age of steam in particular tends to and do. Concordia does as well. Yeah. Sort of. Yep. Sort of. <laughs> um, and I quite like games. Some games I feel have a more natural expansion style, which and dominions an example of this where it's just more of the cards and they kind of flow out and I don't feel it has that same effect as the modular rule things do. But again, I'm just trying to do my best to rationalize my own emotional reactions to different expansion mechanisms. Uh, I appreciate expansions that low rules overhead that expand on the positive things that you enjoy in a game. Those are the best ones. Yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with expansion, modular expansion specifically, because I appreciate what they're trying to do. Like, hey, if you don't like this or you like this aspect, add this one. So I appreciate it from that, but it adds in the which do we want to play. Unless there becomes a kind of generally accepted, this is a good one, yes, this is a bad one, no, or this is a just don't play it without it type thing. Yeah, and there are those expansions that fix a problem. Um, so an example of that, um, which I haven't tried yet, is the Queen's Gambit in Lisboa, where with Lisboa, the, a lot of people found that the end of the game was a rush to get decree cards. Yep. And so Lacerda came up with this thing that basically says, at a certain point in the game, you can't buy decree cards anymore. And it's beautifully thematically integrated in the game, as usual. Um, and I've yet to try it, but I can certainly see how that's the way to do it. And he says that's the only way to play it. That should be the standard way. And that goes to show that even a published game can get further developed by, you know, hundreds, thousands of quote-unquote playtesters 
i.e. people that have bought the game and, yep. you know, designer, developer, uh, further streamlines or, or not fixes necessarily, but things that just couldn't have come up or, yep. or maybe didn't come up, whichever that may be. Yeah. Somebody uh, in chat mentions uh, Ketchup expansion for uh, Food Chain Magnate. Well, I think that's an interesting idea with it being fully modular, but you just choose, okay, you could just randomly pick this, this, this. We're going to replace three of these and add those in and boom. And it's a completely different animal when you do so. So again, it's a it's that kind of love-hate relationship. But yeah, I mean, whatever it is, float your boat. Yep. All right. So that is... Uh, that was Concordia as well as expansion talk, I guess. This one is uh, close to your heart. The original is close to my heart. The question is whether or not this one is. Well, in July was a very wet month, so. Seems appropriate. And we're, uh, we're talking Dominus Species Marine. Uh, so it is a sister game or a sibling game, if you will, to Dominant Species, designed also by Chad Johnson. It was his final design before he passed away. Uh, and... Dominant Species is a Hall of Fame game for me. It is one of the quintessential worker placement games, in my opinion. I think it is wonderful at four, five, or six players. And I think for a two-and-a-half-hour game, which it should be without teaching, uh, Dominant Species has set the bar really, really high for me. So coming into it, Dominant Species Marine, I didn't know... What to expect? I kind of had mixed feelings on it. I, it's hard to not have high expectations on it, but also have a sense of dread. Like, can it possibly live up to its predecessor? Kind of like a Brass Birmingham versus a Brass Lancashire, right? And so I went through this ebb and flow before I actually played it. I was really looking forward to it. Then I really wasn't looking forward to it because I knew it was going to be a letdown no matter how good it was. And then I just came to the realization, you know what? Just how about you just judge the game on it being itself, it, which is which is easy to do when you don't have it doesn't have a lineage. So a new game of whatever, it's easy to do doesn't have a predecessor, so to speak. Whereas something like this does, and it's hard to really just judge it on its own. And so I tried to come into it with out a lot of expectation. And then when Alyssa was going through the rules of it, and one of the hallmarks of dominant species is kind of a programming aspect of the worker placement. So it goes in three phases. The players in turn order place all their workers out on the board. Once everyone is done placing their workers out on the board, then all of the actions then get resolved after everybody has placed all their workers. So they're resolved in a particular order, top to bottom, left to right. And then there's a, a kind of a cleanup phase after that. 
Dominant Species Marine changes that. You place a worker and immediately carry out that action. And I was like, ah, just hearing that just turned me off on the game because I was like, that is such a key element to this, to dominant species. But then I had a little talk with myself saying, Edward, this, you're judging it on its own game. Give it a chance. Okay. Well, the thing that kind of, I found out that kind of offset that uh, feeling about that was there's this clever, simple little thing that when you place a worker, your first worker, you can place it on any action that's out there, right? Top to bottom, anyone there. However, on any subsequent worker that you place or action pawn, with the exception of there being some special pawns that you're able to acquire, but not talking about those, whatever action pawn at every subsequent action pawn after the first must be placed further down the progression track. So in other words, it either needs to be on the same action, but further to the right or lower. So if you choose to place your first action pawn out there, three quarters of the way down, well, now you only have a quarter of the actions that you're able to take. And that incredibly limits what you can do. But ultimately, you're the one that chooses that, so you're making your own bed. That is a cool way mm. of implementing that. And you may want to jump down because you want to take that action before anybody else does. Because it's desperately important. Or is it so important that you miss out on these other things that you also kind of feel like you need to do? And I think that is such a really, really clever balance there. Yeah, that, that was a really, really nice mechanic. And kind of hearkening back to Concordia, there is normally like, okay, in dominant species, you place all your workers, they're resolved left to right, top to bottom, and then every, as they're resolved, you take your workers back. In dominant species marine, there isn't that. There is that Concordia-esque thing to where in Concordia, you play a card that allows you to pick up your, your cards back into your hand, your discard pile. This has a retrieval action. Instead of placing a worker, you then retrieve all of your workers off the board. And it becomes a little uh, clever um, off-sync thing. Every player starts out kind of in sync with one another because we're all placing workers to begin the game, right? Because we don't have any out there. But as we choose to at different times, maybe I don't place all my workers because I want to retrieve them because I want to be able to take that action that's further up, but I can't because I've already moved further down past that action. So maybe I take that retrieval action before I place all my workers. Well, now I have to work around all the other players' workers that are out there because they're taking up spots. But it allows me to, to be able to kind of reset where I want to go. And when we get off sync with one another, and what I mean by that is you're having to work around other players' action pawns out there, that is also a clever little thing that there really isn't a turn order per se. It's there's a for the very beginning, there is a turn order every round, but it's not always we're not always in sync and in mm. phase with one another. And I think that is also a really, really clever way to balance some of the differences that make it stand out from the original dominant species. 
Yeah, it was uh, quite a... There's a no, number of things about the game that you wouldn't think I would go for. I'm, I tend to be a little bit not super taken with heavy area control kind of games in general. Um, but this one this one's quite appealing. I mean, I, I, I would definitely like to give it another shot. And so without belaboring it, I will say this. It does not replace dominant species, in my opinion. I do think that there is a place in somebody's collection for both, provided you like area uh, control, area majority type games. However, they are they are different. They're they're very very similar to a brass Lancashire versus a brass Birmingham. They that it, it's hard not to make that comparison because they are sibling games, and I think they are different enough, but also feel like one another, right? And I and again, that's. That's a credit to what the game is. It doesn't play quicker. The one thing that I do not, and I feel strongly about this, that I do not like about Dominant Species Marine is in the base game, the, the regular setup, you remove, I think it's 10 of the events out of the game. And they're supposed to be random and they're supposed to be unknown to the players. It makes it a little hard to set some strategies, not knowing whether or not the cards that really kind of lean into that are in there or not. Whereas in the regular dominant species, all the cards are in there. There is a quote unquote epic variant, which definitely will make the game considerably longer uh, by including all the cards. But then that makes it longer than a regular game of dominant species. So, yeah. Could you house rule it to where the players know what cards are not in the game? Sure. But again, I just, that's just one really big sticking point for me. Um, but that said, I do think that the end game uh, becomes less of a AP fest that in Dominant Species Marine than Dominant Species has, which I think that is a huge improvement on Dominant Species Marine, because at the end it becomes a, a race for migration to get onto the right tiles and this and that. There's less of that in Dominant Species Marine because of the way the final scoring works in it. So overall, I will say this. Dominant Species Marine uh, exceeded my low expectation of it and did a remarkable job of setting itself apart from Dominant Species while also feeling similar or feeling having a a giving your giving you a good feel that I'm in the dominant species universe but that made it its own game and ultimately uh I like it I do hmm. I do, I don't love it but I would welcome playing it more which is the best I think you can ask for with this kind of sibling game I mean, this is kind of like a variation on the expansion that we talked about earlier on, um, except it's 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 kind of like the map where you've got a similar game with variant rules, except it's it's the entire box because you, you it's more than you can just do with a single map because you need different pieces, different. And again, Brass Birmingham, Brass Lancashire is is the obviously um, part of that. Um, and you're always, I think, in a tricky position with a sibling game because anybody who really loves the original game. When you make a change, you're subject to loss aversion 
The peop- things that you don't like, you're going to feel twice as much as the things that you like. That's the kind of the natural loss aversion. I'd, it, I, I feel the same amount of pain losing $10 as, I, as benefit I was gain from gaining $20, even though financially it's a two-to-one difference. The emotional reaction for a loss is double the, the, the gain. And you get that effect when you do something like a sibling game. Um, and then fresh players will come in and they won't have that necessarily reaction. So you then get this weird thing, and which you're seeing in, in discussions of brass. There's a lot of people that really, really don't like Brass Birmingham compared to the original brass. Um, but it's Brass Birmingham that has shot up the BGG charts. Um, and I think a lot because of people who haven't didn't try it before. And as a result, they came straight into Birmingham. Um, and with Dominant Species Moon, you're going to get those same effects. But I do like the sibling games because they're similar enough to lower the rules burden of taking on a new one, as it is with an Age of Steam map. But it's still a coherent, thought-out thing. Um, and you, and you, once you've made your choice, I'm playing Dominant Species or Dominant Species Marine, you follow the rules for that. You haven't got that. Which 25 combinations of six modules am I going to use? Fair. So there we go. Dune Imperium. Oh my God, did that game overstay its welcome? Yep, yep. That was uh, Dune the Never Endingum. Yes, that was. Yeah. Um. Where to begin? So it's. I mean, it, it didn't sell itself terribly when it's described. Oh, this is a fusion between worker placement and uh, deck building. It's kind of oh, two heavily overused mechanisms. But Go for once. But but I. So the Dune theme does nothing for me. I've never read the books. I I think I've sort of watched the movies, bits and pieces here or there. And the original Dune game, I may have played it once, but eh, whatever. So I have no ties to the Dune theme, first off. But I like worker placement. I like deck building. All right, let's give it a try. So I was like, cool, all right, let's go. And then uh, Craig was teaching it, and I was... All right, that's fine. And then I was like, okay, cool. All right. Um, it, it's it's limiting in that there's it's simple, uh, relatively speaking, compared to a lot of the other games that we've been talking about. Mechanically simple. Yep. Um, and when you have a mechanically simpler game, the it should have a matching appropriate time frame in which it plays. And this didn't have that. No. And I think the the best way I can sum this up is completely forgettable and have no interest in playing it again. Do we stream it? Maybe. Um just for to to stream something, but unless you are a hardcore Dune enthusiast, eh. But I don't see a hardcore Dune enthusiast going for it because I mean thematically it's got nothing. I mean, okay, instead of wood and stone, you've got spice and water. And there's pictures from some Dune movie what's-it thing on the cards. That's about its only connection with Dune. There is nothing in that game that makes me think of Dune. And I mean, I, I've read, I read the, the, some of the books a long time ago, but I think I'd recognize if the theme had some salience to the game. Um, but it's really, it's got as much thematic connection as Takanu. 
um, which is to say none at all. So yeah, it was. I always test. I always say any worker placement game has to pass the Kalos test to me, which is would I rather be playing Kalos, which was the first well-known worker placement game. Very few worker placement games pass that test. This failed that. This failed that, and failed the Dominion test of uh, you know would I rather be playing Dominion, and I can play a game in Dominion much faster. Moving on, so that's hmm. Dune Imperium. Uh, next one is a game that I've had for a number of years that I have been really wanting to play for a long, long time and hadn't gotten a chance, and that's a study in Emerald, talking about Martin Wallace. Now, I do have the first and second edition. I have been told, again, coming into this cold, that if you tend to like the types of games that we tend to like, you're going to gravitate and enjoy more the first edition. And the second edition streamlines a bunch of stuff and takes a bunch of stuff out. And from what I've been led to believe, basically is a kinder, gentler, simpler version of the first edition. So obviously we all went to the first edition. Uh, we had kind of messed around. I think it was Alyssa and me. Uh, with the uh, going through learning the game and kind of didn't really play a two-player game. We kind of played at it a little bit, but more or less just literally moving pieces, seeing how the mechanisms work and kind of messed around with it two-player. It's not a two-player game. And then, okay, cool. And then we actually were able to play it the following week. I think we played it three or four-player. Four-player. And I think... Four or five is where this game is going to definitely uh, be ideal, but um, simpler than I thought it was going to be. Like, the game is not as complex as I thought it was going to be coming into it cold. Yeah, it's fairly, fairly straightforward in terms of rules. I had a real difficulty trying to figure out what the hell I was trying to achieve. Um, so I think pretty much the entire game I was at, in the push buttons at random, pull levers at random to, to see what happened um, stage of it, which may have been part of the problem for, for me because one of the interesting things about studying Emerald is um, you are secretly put into two teams, and I put teams with huge inverted air quotes here because you are still competing with the other person on your team. It's just that... Whoever's team has somebody who finishes last, they're eliminated. So you want to make sure that you beat your other people on your team, but you also want to make sure that whoever's on the opposite team, feel somebody on that team falls behind the last person on your team, because otherwise you won't win. Which is an interesting kind of little mind game, and of course you don't know who's on the team at the beginning, although it should become apparent later on. I was overly eager to hide which team I was on because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, it's, it's an interesting... I mean, the game was just full of interesting little mechanisms like that that you kind of go, ooh, that's interesting. I wonder what that does. Ooh, this is an interesting object. What happens when I poke this with a stick? Yeah, it's Cthulhu meets Sherlock Holmes uh, based on a short story by Neil Gaiman. And the theme, meh to me, like that doesn't... It, I've never been a big Cthulhu... Fan, Sherlock Holmes. I enjoy mysteries, so okay. But so the theme wasn't grabbing me. It was it was merely just uh, studying emeralds, supposed to be a pretty cool game. And I like the mechanisms. The the game uh is relatively simple. It, it's basically kind of a deck builder as well as a 
sort of area majority driven game with a score track that is not always accurate intentionally. So you get points for doing certain things. However, those points, each team, depending on which team you're on, will score for certain different things. So the things that you're getting points for are universal in a sense that it's public knowledge, but you might not score those if you're on a certain team. So therefore, where you are on the score track isn't a, always an accurate depiction of who's winning, who's losing. And I think it's just a really clever, quirky, mm. weird-ass game in that regard. Now, only played it once and kind of messed around with it uh, a previous time. But I've heard this game definitely shines at four or five. And five, you might think, oh, that's weird if it's two teams, so you're going to have three versus two. You might have four versus one, potentially. Uh, which I, I just think that I like the odd number in that regard. I think that's clever, but mm. the, the deck building, it's a, it's a card driven game to where they the cards out there are going to multi-use cards. You can either play it for the action or the symbols up in the, to be able to do things. Um, and me, again, mechanically very simple, far simpler than I thought it was going to be, but just a really quirky, fun clever little game that I want to play more of. Yeah, I definitely had the, oh, I want to play this again feel with A Study in Emerald. And I would like to try the second edition to see as how it would, As would I. I have very no expectations of the second edition, but I, I'm very curious to try it. And I fully expect to try it and be like, oh, that was... That was an experience, and then, you know, toss it to the side and go back to the first edition. That's what I fully expect. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Or maybe it just is that, and that's fine because have the first edition, so no harm, no foul. But um, I think before we actually ever review it, I think it's imperative to try the mm. second edition to be able to compare and contrast it. Yeah, well, I definitely would like to dig in more to that. I'm looking forward to playing a bit more of it. And me too, but that requires having more people around to be able to do so. Yes, yeah, so it'll have to be wait till the summer ends and we actually get people around. Right. So uh, next up is a game that was completely not on my radar at all and was uh, handed to Jess to, for us to give a try to. And this is uh, the game Furnace from Arcane Wonders, or the English edition is from Arcane Wonders, I think. Uh, I don't think it's available yet. Um, we may be doing, uh, I, I fully expect to be able to, to be doing a playthrough of this mm. sooner rather than later and talk about, this is the antithesis of all of the game or a lot of the games that we have talked about, uh, so far today, because you want to talk about focused. Um, this is one thing done and that's the game, but man, does it do it well? Yeah. I mean, at this, the heart of the game is a, just a fascinating auction. Um, there's a bunch of cards which you want to use to do kind of resource conversion stuff, which is meh, but that's not the heart of the game, so you don't really care. To bid on the cards, you've got four bids you can make. You've got four scoring bids, one, two, three, four. Um, and so you're making this limited range of bids. But with the interesting twist that if you don't win the auction to get the card that you want, you instead gain some resources that the non-winners gain. And the resources that you gain are proportional to how high your bid is. 
So you can quite likely say, oh, I could really do with the steal on that card and put a three on, really hoping somebody else is going to outbid with you with a four because that way you get three times the amount of resources. Or do you want to maybe drop it down to a one or a two to make more sure you're going to get overbid? And then the other twist is you can't put the same number that somebody else has put onto a card, nor can you bid on the same card twice. And the result of all of these little simple rules on makes the auction really weirdly interesting. It is. It's as good of a simple auction mechanism as I've ever seen. And then the winners of the cards uh, take the cards, and then basically you run your engine, which is a very, very straightforward, completely boring, completely meh aspect of, okay, I have these number of cards in front of me, and now you run every card once in whatever order that you want to run it, and it's all about getting points. That's the entire game. You're off and running at that point. I think you could probably play the game right now having heard that description of it. It does nothing super new, but that auction is just mm. fantastic. We have played the game numerous times and have enjoyed the game more and more every time we've yep. played it. Everybody who's played it has enjoyed it. And there is a variant that you can play that if you're a sicko, you can do to where... Uh, you put your cards as you claim them in a in a left or right row in front of you. You can place the new cards anywhere you want, either before or after any card, but once it's placed, it's placed. Talk about adding to a, a level of complexity that how is, if I win this card, where am I going to put it? How important is it to win this? Such a simple, simple little game, mm. but man, that is, to use a... a, 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 a uh, British term, a cracking game. That yeah. is really, really well done. Yeah, that's one of the most interesting games that we've come across recently. It's a really lovely little game. Yeah, so uh, definitely uh, look for that on a stream sooner rather than later probably. But uh, yeah, just from highly recommend if you are into really clever auctions, definitely, definitely recommend trying that one. Uh, another one that we played the same day as we played, uh, we busted out two simultaneous games of this, and that's Biosphere. Hmm. So uh, this is another game of species breeding across a map, basically. Um, you got a bunch of species cubes, you stick them on a the map, you have a breeding action, you have a limited amount of movement, um, you have area majorities on hexes, um, some echoes of dominant species, but a different game. Um, it did lead to the, one of the most withering looks I've ever seen Edward give, which was when Dan said he preferred Biosphere to dominant species. <laughs> no. But uh, Dan is plus four against withering looks, so he just bounced right off him. Um, and uh, he went on to win the game, basically because we didn't really get in and compete with him enough in his corner of the map. Another interesting thing I kind of liked about it is it's one of these games that you score points through goal cards. There are, I think, eight goal cards that are put out, and the first person to achieve five of them 
is the winner. So it's not kind of it's not a victory point. Uh, it's a race game. Yeah, it's a race game, but it's an it's an interesting form of that, I think. Um, well, I suppose it's not that different to let's say Scythe is the same thing, right? Where it's first person to get so well. Now there, it's the trigger of the end game of, in Scythe. Of course, you do win on the points. Here it is very definitely get your first five. Um, what's it? Um, on the whole, I, I really quite like Biosphere. It was uh, again the, the the rules complexity was about right for the level of game. Um, I quite enjoyed the uh, battling over the map. I'll definitely give it another shot. It's man, I, I've played this now three times, and I don't dislike the game, which I did after the first game of it. And I played it two player. Justin, I streamed this. I believe it was two player, and. The the problem I have with it, it's a it's a dice placement as sort of it has some very clever mechanisms of the aging of the dice. Your mm. your species that are out there on the board will eventually die off and uh reproduce and, and migrate around the board. The I haven't figured out, and I'm not saying that the game doesn't allow for this. I'm saying I haven't figured out a way to be able to catch up. Once you fall behind on this, I have yet to, I just flounder. And I am dead in the water. And I have yet to be able to see anybody come from behind to win in this game. So is that a uh, pull away leader or fall away loser problem? I'm not sure. Or is it a learn to play better, which there definitely is plenty of that. I have made mistakes in every time I played this game. But I think it's, it's got a, some clever mechanisms. It definitely also has uh, one broken mechanism, the advanced game for uh, the tiebreaker aspect, the track that a lot of people just say needs to be developed further if there is ever a new version of the game and, and done something better. Usually just don't play with it much. Um, but overall, I, I'm intrigued by it, but I don't love it. Hmm. So that's where I fall on, on Biosphere. Yep, I think that's 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 fair enough. I mean, I'd certainly try it again, but uh, yeah, I, it's not something I'm going to rush towards. Right, and it's it's hard to get a hold of a copy if you don't have a copy, um, and maybe one day it gets reprinted. We'll see. So what do we have next? Oh, we have something that uh, you've been playing uh, and are going to play a lot, but uh, I'm not part of this group, so go ahead and talk about it. And that's Oath uh, from Leader Games. A very... I think it's fair to say... I, I hope this comes across right, but it... Just by playing it, you know, if you knew nothing about the designer, you would know it's a Cole Worley game. If you, assuming you know about Cole Whirly games, you've experienced those before. Talking about, you know, what, uh, a Pax Pamir, a John Company, a uh, Root, or a an Oath game, very asymmetric, very. I don't. I, I have yet to be able to put a finger on really how to describe how Oath is. Um, asymmetric. I. Oath is Oath. Um, we've played it uh, a, a few times now, uh, playing it three and four players. 
And we have a campaign game that we have started. Uh, we played the first game of the campaign on stream. We're going to be streaming it on the 22nd of August is the next scheduled one. Um, and it is a very clever, mechanically, relatively simple, relatively simple mechanical game. But when I say it's very much a Coworly game, what I mean by that is... What it is you're trying to really do and how you go about doing that is very opaque. And that scratches an itch that I have. But I have to be in a particular mood to want to use my brain in that way. Because they are very unique animals as far as his designs. And they, they make you think about games in ways that a lot of these other games don't. Talking about any number of the games that we've talked about so far, it's pretty clear, okay, I need to do this, which is going to get me that, which then might eventually lead me to points. Pretty simple. Okay, pretty... I mean, whether it's a resource conversion game or any mix of these, pretty simple. No matter how... I don't want to use the word convoluted, but I'm going to use that. No matter how mechanically complex, there is a path that you're going to follow to get points or to be able to win the game, right? Oath isn't that because the goal of the game is going to change depending on that particular game as well as what endgame condition, winning condition, you end up claiming. So it's not always intuitive how it is you're going to go about getting there. And I think it's really clever. And I've enjoyed Oath more and more the more I played it. But I got to be in the right mindset to want to play that type of game because that opaque, okay, I understand now I've chosen this goal, a vision card, if you will. When do I reveal it and how do I get that? Because it very much has kind of a king or queen of the mountain, pick on the leader type thing. Because once you establish and you you make it public what your in-game goal condition is, you now have a target on your back, whether it's for one or two rounds. And everybody else, while working on their own in-game condition, they need to make sure that they stop you. And so it kind of has that coin-esque feel to it to where you're building up to take your shot and if you miss you're going to be sometimes hard pressed to get another shot to win the game I know that this kind of leads you to think that like as a negative aspect but I it's not that I've actually really enjoyed my plays of the game but it's just such a quirky unique aspect or quirky unique game that there's not a whole lot like a study in Emerald. I don't know that there's anything like Oath either. Mm. But I think that's a good thing. You just got to be aware that it, it's going to be opaque. I have not tried it. So uh, partly because I tend to be very wary of getting into campaign games because I still follow this rule that says, if I wanted to do a campaign game, I'd start a D&D game. And I'm reading chat, and they say, if I'm being honest, I went in not wanting to like Oath. Suffice to say, we played it three times in one night, and I loved it. And somebody else says, Oath, king-making the game. Not entirely, and here's why. If it's going to be, Oath is not meant to be played as a one-off. 
It's meant to be played as a campaign game, sort of. Not a legacy game, but sort of. And what I mean by that is you're not making permanent changes, but the end position of everybody, regardless of whether they won or not, is going to impact the following game. And I think that's really clever. And so the king-making aspect, which can come into play in this, you might choose a non-intuitive choice because it might benefit you for subsequent games. And I think that's kind of clever. Hmm. The Because it's going to introduce new cards into the game to where the winner will get to choose some of those cards. And then it's also going to impact some of the cards that are removed from the game. You're not tearing them up. You're not destroying them. So you can always reset the game at any point if you choose to start a new campaign or whatever. But I, I, I really like that aspect of it. And I, I, it's just really hard for me to describe at this point. And I'm hoping to be able to get a better feel for it with a couple more games and then hopefully be able to review it maybe sometime in the future. Sounds to me like an interesting take on the whole sort of legacy campaign game style. It it is, it really is. So yeah, Oath uh, by Leader Games. Um, so far, really enjoying it. We'll see how it goes. game that we're going to talk about on this is a solo game, a little small game that uh, uh, Shrey turned me on to, and that's called Black Sonata. It's based on, let me, let me bring it up here because I, let's see here. Um, so Black Sonata is, uh, for more than four centuries, scholars have argued over the identity of the mysterious dark lady of William Shakespeare's sonnets. According to the sonnets, the dark lady seducing the poet, uh, seduced the poet and held him uh, in an agonized uh, thrall, while also conducting an affair with the fair youth whom Shakespeare also loved. All right, so there's the premise of Black Sonata. Let me sum it up to you this way. It's a solo-only game, plays in about roughly half an hour, could be an hour if you want to drag it out, especially as I am wont to do on, on solo streams. If you like logic puzzles, I think this is a marvelous game. I think it's really, really well done. I mean, really well done. Logic puzzles for me, whenever I think logic puzzles, and maybe some of y'all will be able to relate to this or not, I spent a lot of my childhood moving and on the road a lot. And I remember at truck stops in other places, there would be these collection of various types of puzzles that you would get in workbooks or, or magazines or something like that. And, you know, they might have word searches, they might have crosswords, they might have uh, cryptograms, they might have anagrams, stuff like that. But they also had these logic puzzles that would give you a clue like, okay, uh, you know, the, the, if, if so-and-so painted so-and-so's house, but painted it after so-and-so. Right after they went to that house, and it gives you a certain set of rules in there, and then with it from within those rules, it becomes a little you know 
um, crossing off this. And it, it's just the logic puzzle that you work your way through. And I w have always been fascinated with those my whole life. This makes me think of that, but without the pen and paper, really. It's with components, with cards, and the way the deck of cards is set up is just a marvelous, clever little thing. And if you really like solo games and you like logic puzzles and you want a ton of replayability, this game has it. And I have loved my plays of this. It comes with, uh, I think, or at least I think you can get it with the Fair Youth expansion. I'm wanting to stream this probably next week. The I streamed the base game, but going to introduce the Fair Youth uh, expansion the next time I stream it that has, uh, wait for it, mini expansions, i.e. little modules that you can add into it uh, to play. But yeah, I, I I'm really enjoying solo games, and I absolutely love logic puzzles, so I enjoyed this far more than I thought I would and eager to pick up my own copy of it. Yeah, the what game shall we play game is a much better solo game, I think. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so Black Sonata, uh, highly recommend if you're into those things. Phew. Oof, that's quite a few games we've been playing the last month or two. It It is, and that um, inevitably we say, oh, it's going to be two hours and we're done. <laughs> um, but you and I both know that you and I talk. We rattle. We yeah. do, we do. Um, so hopefully you all have enjoyed that. But... Uh, the rest of this, I think, is going to be actually pretty brief. Um, there's really, so we might come in under the two-hour mark yet. We'll see how it goes. Acquisitions. You got any? Not in the last... Uh, well, Formosa T, I guess, was the last one, and we've already talked about that. All right. Uh, for me, there's been two. Furnace. Well, there's actually been more, but the, the, a couple of them, I can't remember what they were, and I apologize. There are a couple of other Arcane Wonders that, that got handed to just the hand to me type thing, and I haven't tackled them yet, but Furnace is, is mm. the main one. And the other one, if you're watching live, uh, you see it actually behind me. And I can't remember if I mentioned this in the last podcast or not, but that's Imperial Steam from uh, Alexander Weimer. Sorry, Alex. Uh, same designer as Lignum and from Capstone Games. Upcoming game. Uh, currently, uh, pre-orders are open, and I think we're probably going to be doing a playthrough of this sooner rather than later as well. Um, but Imperial Steam, it's, uh, it's a fantasy train game. Okay. But, I mean, it's... It's not an 18xx. It's not a cube rails. I'm not trying to sell it that way. I'm just saying it's a train themed euro. Okay. Um, shot. So yeah. So that and I haven't played it yet. So those are the two acquisitions. Not not a whole lot really. Uh, let's roll straight into as far as anticipation or hunting type. What you got? Well, every time I have done a podcast, I've said. I'm anticipating getting uh, the uh, Madeira um, next edition in next spring. And I'm still anticipating, hopefully, getting Madeira eventually, one spring or other. What's been going on with that? <sighs> the community, well, a, a serious lack of communication has been the main problem that's what's been going on. 
it's really been dreadful as far as communication. It's gone silent and then what? We saw some photos being made of people actually making the parts in China. So maybe there's some progress going on. There was this whole thing about the shade of the color black or something at one point that I was... I, I mean, they, they seem to want to be perfectionists, but I honestly don't know. I'm just, it'll turn up when it turns up. That's all I can say. But that's the only thing that I would say is on my anticipating this, because I, I, I tend not to buy very many games. I'm currently working through Formosa T. I've got Marco Polo 2 on the shelf that we haven't cracked yet. It's going to be a while before I'm looking to buy a game. Station, well, Station Fall will appear, of course. Um, and that, and that is such an amazing. I hate to use the what I feel like is now a cliche, but party game for heavy gamers. It is the stories that game makes. Oh, that is so good, so yeah. good. I get, I gave a shot of it on uh, on TTS with uh, one of a herd member and Andy, and uh, it it. I'm I'm intrigued. It's going to be very different to most other games that I've got, and that's part of the reason I decided to go for it. But the the wacky story aspect of it looks interesting. So yes, that that's also on my anticipation list. I forgot to put that one on it. All right. So yeah, uh, Station Fall, fantastic. It obviously, only played on TTS as well. But uh, for me, um, it's really three and two of them. I've said repeatedly on this show that into I I, I just haven't gotten them. Um, and that's Versailles, 1918. Versailles from GMT and and uh, uh, Mark Herman and uh, Imperial Struggle. Um, those two GMT games, I'm Jones into get and play. Really, really bad. And the other one that I know is in route is from Mind Clash, and that's Voidfall. So uh, we're doing a playthrough of that. I know in the coming. Weeks, I believe, would be a good time to, you know, a good time frame on that. So looking forward to those uh, as far as acquisition-wise. So, yeah, not, not, a, not a really big list. All right, moving on to looking forward to playing. Um, that My list is ever-growing. It really is. Uh, I'll bust mine out real quick. Uh, do these briefly because a lot of these are going to be very similar, I think, from the last show, sadly. Uh, the Capitals. It's a old Mercury Games uh, game from 2013, 2014 City Builder that you spend the entire game in negative money, negative points. And your goal is to win by hopefully getting into positive points. And it's hard. And it's long and it's tough, but I remember really enjoying the Capitals. And I want to get that played. Haven't played it in forever. Uh, next, King's Dilemma. A game that theoretically I should not like is a kind of a co-op negotiation game that everybody has secret goals that they are working on. And they want the group to make decisions. It's a group decision game. But it becomes a negotiation aspect of, okay, I'm willing to concede here, but I really need you to do this then. And it's, it's, it's a story-driven game that the group, kind of a choose-your-own-adventure type thing that is cooperative, that has the players also working on their own individual goals. It is unlike anything else that's in existence. I want to give it a try. Something, hmm. you know, unique from, I think, two years ago now. 
from Spiel that we, because the pandemic, just haven't been able to. We were going to do it remotely, and I don't think that's possible. So we need people around the table for that. 18 Chesapeake. Uh, that's going to be the next 18XX that gets streamed. Uh, supposed to be a fantastic entry point, uh, as well as something that uh, gamer uh, experience 18XXers will enjoy. I've yet to play it, but we have a lot of people in the local group that really enjoy it. That we're going to be able to bust that out. Not experts at it, but don't need to be. Uh, Race for the Galaxy. I haven't played that game for in forever, and I have a lot of resident experts here. There's you, there's Shrey, there's Ken, there's a bunch of other people that are Race for the Galaxy uh, uh, aficionados that I very much am not, but I want to play them. And yeah, so. And you, you said you fancied doing the, the whole kind of context for it, right? Do from Puerto Rico to San Juan to Race for the Galaxy to Roll for the Galaxy to New Frontiers. Yes, and we recently played New Frontiers, which actually should have been on this list. Uh, yep. And I thoroughly enjoy New Frontiers, uh, which is. Race for the Galaxy, the board game? Yeah, or as I like to call it, I, I, I start with Puerto Rico. So it's so uh, New Frontiers is Puerto Rico, the card game, which is sound one, in space, which is Race for the Galaxy, the board game, New Frontiers. And it nails it. It really does. It, <laughs> it, it doesn't last as long as I want it to. I feel like the game ends too quick. Like that's my, which you don't hear that too often, I, I think, mm. about board games. But yeah. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, Black Sonata expansion, Fair Youth. And lastly, Star Trek Frontiers. I am not excited to play this game. Star Trek Frontiers is Mage Knight in the Star Trek universe. I am not a Trekkie. I don't have any strong opinions one way or the I, I enjoyed the show, both Next Generation as well as the original. It's fine. But whatever. But it's Mage Knight in Star Trek. The problem with Mage Knight is doing an entire, doing a solo game of it in a single setting is not where I think Mage Knight uh, really shines. I think being able to have Mage Knight set up, keeping it on your table, and playing it over the course of several sessions as a solo game, I think it's, it would be a phenomenal way to do it. But it's... A lot of times it was just too much. It was too long for me on a stream. It just, that was, that was taxing. And so that has me apprehensive to do Star Trek uh, Frontiers, but I think people would enjoy it. So I want to play it on stream for that. So there you go. Yeah, that's what the sense I get with Mage Knight is people like to kind of have it on the table over the course of a week or two, gradually working their way a little bit each night kind of thing. Yeah, and it, in that regard, it is thought of as arguably the best solo game in existence that isn't D-Day at Omaha Beach. Mm. I can absolutely appreciate it, even though it's not my favorite. Right. So how about you, as far as uh, looking forward to playing? And, and uh, before, actually, before you start with that, any of those really... You fancy on on I any of those? On. Um, looking at those again. Well, race obviously I'm in for. Uh, the others I haven't really heard enough about to have a strong opinion about. So, but we'll see. I'm always inclined to try things. The King's Dilemma doesn't sound like it's going to kind of thing that's my cup of tea. 
Um, and with 18 Chesapeake, you've got lots of other people who are going to be more into 18XX than I am. So That's fair. Oh, and there was one other I forgot to mention, which I've mentioned numerous times before. That's Era Tribes. Still want to get that to the table. Just the rule book I've heard is pretty big disaster. And so tackling that and getting ready to play that, to teach it, and then to stream it, that's that's something that's coming eventually. So. Yeah, I'm definitely up for uh, Race of the Galaxy and its cousins, though. Although uh, I don't think I ever want to teach Race for the Galaxy again. Um, I'm proud of my ability to teach games. I'm told I teach them very well, which I should hope so, because I'm, you know, my job is teaching complicated concepts for a living. Every time I've taught Race for the Galaxy, it's been, oh, I've been appalled by my performance because it is a really difficult game to teach for such a quick playing game. Yeah, it's 20 minutes to play and two hours to teach. <laughs> awesome. All right, so for you. For, for me. Um, well, the, of the games that are out there that I'd like to get my teeth into, the, the highest on the list at the moment is for cost. Um, I'm really... I mean, A, it's that kind of economic game that I like, so the, the brass wildcatters kind of thing that I always... I find that kind of game interesting. And then you've got a game where the designers are making the deliberate attempt to engage with a dark part of the capitalist system, which is asbestos mining. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've heard a fair bit about it. I'm just interested to see how I would take to that game and to see what it's like to play it. Now, you've played it on, on TTS, right? You streamed it on TTS. And I actually played a physical copy of it before, like in its development phases uh, previously. And it definitely tackles the moral dilemma of that uh, pretty well head on. And I, I do wish, you know how you and I like to, and we've talked about it ad nauseum in this, that we like historical things, right? And we like real world stuff as far as locations or maps or whatever it may be. In the cost, it has four countries that aren't countries for, I mean, obvious reasons, I guess. But I feel like could have taken it that one step further and made them real countries because, for example, um, well, first off, I didn't know asbestos was a naturally occurring thing until this game. I thought it was a man-made thing. Like, uh, the only thing I know about asbestos is the mesothelioma commercials and... Uh, like in ceilings, it's asbestos is, you know, terrible for you. Mm. That's the only thing I knew about asbestos before this game. Now I've learned that it's a naturally occurring thing. It is a incredibly good fire retardant that they used to make clothes out of asbestos. Mm. Uh, again, you go through, you know, uh, rabbit holes when you're researching these things. And I also learned that Canada outlawed it a number of years ago. I don't even want to gauge how long, but a while. However, the mining of it and the extra uh, the exporting of it was not illegal in Canada until 2018, maybe? <laughs> or thereabouts. I might be off a year or two there, but way more recent than you would have thought. So I think having one of the countries be Canada, I think, would have just added a little bit more angst to the game. 
right. tackling the subject. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure there are others, but that's the one that, that kind of stuck right. in my head because Canada is a first world country and here exporting it to third world countries is just fine or was for way too long. I find that interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate the way it tackles it. It has some pretty clever mechanisms and uh, it's hard. So yay, right? Mm. Yeah, another one I'm, I'm anticipating as well, we didn't put it on the list, is Anno 1800, because I've heard so many people, I've heard quite a few people say that this is a game, that it's a Martin Wallace game, and it's, it's up there with the, the, the classic ones that we've just mentioned. And so I want to see if it is true, because, I mean, if it is up there with Automobile, then... I want to play it. Yeah, definitely. And and in fact, on last night's stream, people brought up Anno 8, and yeah, I, I, I forgot to mention that as well. So yeah, that's one that I'm looking forward to as well. I'll be honest, though. Outside of the video game version of it, I don't know if it's an IP. I don't know if it's related to that, but kind of a Civ building type uh, game. Well, that that scratches a lot of itches for me. If it's if, it, but other than that, I I know almost nothing about it. I do know it's tied to the video game. I know nothing about the video game, but uh, I know it's it's tied to it. So, but it's it's only just appearing in English, and that's why you know it's been out in German, I think, for quite a while. But so it's, we're still yet to get our hands on it. But uh, that's intriguing, if only because I've heard things of it from sort of other sources. And you got one more on here. Oh yeah, I yes. When this is, uh, um, as I mentioned earlier on, that uh, we talked about perhaps playing Lisboa and didn't get the chance to play it. I've played it many, many times. Um, I've pretty much entirely forgotten it, so it'll be interesting to get back to it. But I am looking forward to uh, getting that uh, out again and and seeing uh, how it comes back after it's been at least two or three years since I've last played it. Which it's always nice to go back to games that you really enjoyed that you haven't played in a while. It helps keep them fresh. Mm. Yep. So there we go. So that's it. Uh, anything else you like it, real world stuff going on um, as far as travel or not travel or anything real world stuff that isn't games you want to bring up? Not really. I haven't really done much traveling. We, at least we've been getting a little bit around in New England, certainly a couple of months ago before the Delta variant started sweeping through. But now the Delta variant's going in. It makes me a bit less inclined to to travel much to, until at least it taps down a little bit. And sort of going beyond New England, no. no I haven't, uh, and don't expect to, this, certainly for the rest of this year. Yeah, we, uh, we had plans to go to, like, Essen, to go to other conventions and such, and those are now off the table for this year. Um, yeah. Not 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 planning on any of those things uh, for much the same reasons. And a lot of publishers are also backing out. But honestly, it's it's a it's a comfort and a a peace of mind thing on an individual basis. You you deal with your own amount of risk that you're willing to take on. And also there's social responsibilities, right? And so we've been doing uh, some camping, which isolated, right? Mm. Uh, biking, all this stuff is outdoors. Um, so there's been more of that than there ever was before. And that's likely to continue for the immediate future. And um, hopefully reconvene with everybody to be able to play more games together. Um, now, 
Uh, the interesting thing is everybody that's here in the studio, we've all been vaccinated, right? That's one of the prerequisites to be able to get together that we all have imposed in and of ourselves, but also we're all of the same mind in that regard. And so don't know how the Delta variant is going to play into that and whether or not if we're all vaccinated, are we still like, is this something that we can do, that we should do because we have this platform? Is it responsible? Is it irresponsible to be able to do that, to get together, to show that? Should we have masks on? Like, it, all of these questions are going to have to get tackled again um, with all of this going on. So we're kind of at the whim of that, right, of, yeah. of the world, because I think that stuff matters as well. It does. I mean, I, for the moment, I'm feeling that if it's with other vaccinated people that you know, um, you know, you're not sort of going into any big groups or other, then you're probably okay. Um, and I must admit, it is so nice to do. I mean, I've there's been nice things about the pandemic in the sense that I've done this um, over the internet gaming with my friends in Europe who I haven't seen, I don't normally get to see very much, and we've been seeing each other every week during the time of the pandemic to get together and play games, but it's different to actually play face-to-face -face and the wider range of games. And, you know, I get sick of looking at a computer screen. I do it all week. Um, so it's nice to have a, oh, it's a board and I can see things again. It's, and particularly when we got together at Age of Steam and, oh, great, I don't have to kind of peer on the map to try and figure out what I'm seeing anymore. I can actually see everything in front of me. And you're not having to handle all of our banks all at once. Um, makes it a lot more pleasant for all of us. It uh, it works better, um, but you do what you have to do, right? Yep. Uh, you 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 take the the hand that's been dealt to you and you play it as best you can. I guess. Yep. So so yeah. Uh, so there you go. I guess that is a wrap. Um, I think so. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Always very much. happy to pop over. And uh, thanks to everybody live who who hung out with us today. Yep. Um, there, uh, people are saying play some cave evil. If I get a copy, anachrony. Um, if I get the new version with the with the solo with the new revised solo stuff, uh, that may come into play. Uh, doing a solo stream of anachrony. Um, thoughts on Tanner's Trail? I think I, I really like it. I haven't played the new version of it. Um, we've streamed that a number of times. Uh, somebody is adamant about Empire of the Sun. Um, maybe one day having uh, Mark Herman here in studio. Uh, so he and I can kind of fumble our way. Well, he's not going to fumble. He's the designer, and he's the world's leading expert on Empire of the Sun. I can fumble along with him and have him teach Empire of the Sun. That would be uh, wonderful. That would be amazing. But, again, all in due time because Mark Herman does come up to the Cape on occasion, uh, so relatively close, so that would be cool to have that done. Um, but other than that, that's it. That's a wrap. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, subscribe, like, all that fun stuff. Uh, appreciate it. Going to try and be as regular as possible with this. Uh, same with just the live streams in general. Um, if you're a patron, patron rewards have already started to go out. I appreciate everyone's ungodly patience on that. And... Yeah, I guess that's it. Oh, there is one other thing on a person because I can't get a hold of him any other way. Adam Brecky, if you hear this, look at your email. That's all I got. All right. Thanks, everybody. Y'all take care. Uh, be kind to one another. Get vaccinated. Um, we had an interesting discussion uh, the other night about should governments and companies be 
offering incentives to get vaccinated or is the vaccine enough of an incentive to, hey, you get to live? Maybe that should... Anyway, I digress. Anyway, get vaccinated, wear your mask, be respectful of one another, and uh, take care of one another, okay? Take care, everybody.